I'm Kimberly C. Paul. Today we talk with Lucy Kalanithi. She's a physician, a mother, and the widow of Paul Kalanithi, who wrote the book, When Breath Becomes Air. How do we become the architect of our own destiny? Throughout two decades of working with the dying, I think I've discovered the secrets to dying well in America. We must learn to build the pathways to our last chapter, to create the blueprints that reflects our individual lives and values. Knowledge is power, and if we desire a death that reflects our life, we must become the designer. So first of all, thank you so much for joining us today. It was really a pleasure to meet you in Greenville, North Carolina yeah. recently and connect with you. And so I really do appreciate your time today. Thanks for having me. And I wanted to talk about Paul um, a little bit before we, we get into his book. And I wanted to sort of, he was a funny guy. And I just thought I would start with a little bit of your love story of how you guys met and fell in love. Oh, yeah, sure. So um, Paul and I met in 2003 as first year med students at Yale. And um, he was super funny. I mean, he he was sort of known in our class for being intellectual. He was running this bioethics seminar with another student. And it's like, he I don't know, he could tell he was smart. And then um, it took me a while to figure out how funny he was. There was he was famous because he wore a fake mustache in his med school ID. And it was crazy. I mean, it was crazy. He showed up on the first day and I think he was worried, you know, he'd been a comedy writer in college too. And it was really funny. And I think he was worried that med school was going to like suck some of that out of him or something, which like it kind of does, you know? So, um, he pulled out this fake mustache from his pocket and put it on his face. And it was, it was nutty because three years later he's applying to be a neurosurgeon and it's on the class face sheet and all the attendings are seeing it while they're writing his recommendations. But I do think <laughs> it was like this little amulet, you know, I mean, it really was like a, it was that kind of idea. But I, once I put that all together, like the smarts and the sense of humor, I was like, forget it. <laughs> <laughs> and he's easy on the eyes too. <laughs> I know that's true. <laughs> he was beautiful. Um, but he was a writer in, but he was always interested in mortality for some reason. I know he really was. He sort of saw thinking about our, our, you know, what it means to live in a mortal body and what it means to have a finite life as a kind of an intellectual problem. Um, and he was really interested in it, you know, even as a 20 year old or something, um, he was reading T.S. Eliot and he was reading, um, you know, um, Heidegger and like other philosophy about, um, the body, you know, so, and so then he became a doctor because he was sort of interested in really grappling with that stuff and a neurosurgeon because he loved the brain. And then he became sick, you know, really sick when he was 36. So suddenly he sort of had these tools um, to put it into words. So let's talk about the day. And he was diagnosed about 10 years after we met in 2013. And we'd been married for um, a bunch of those years. Um, he had symptoms for about five months before the diagnosis. And he was working as a chief resident in neurosurgery at Stanford, and he had just come on to the most intense years of the residency. Um, he literally was like in the operating room 10 to 14 hours a day, and he's like skipping meals, and he's really stressed. I mean, like loving it, but stressed. And he had lost about 15 pounds as an intern when he started residency, and then he did it again um, when he was a chief resident. So initially, it was sort of like, oh, hey, I need to book you to eat more or whatever. Right. <laughs> and then, um, and then after a number of months, he started having like night sweats and, um, I just like, he seemed sort of like, 
sicker than that. And I think as a physician, even for me, it's like you sort of have an intuition about like somebody's doing well or not. And we were both worried. So we started going to the doctor and he got some spine x-rays that were actually okay. Oh, and he started having back pain. Sorry, that was a huge one. Terrible back pain. It was the weight loss and the back pain. But his spine x-rays were okay, um, you know, which they can be in cancer, but it's all of it is so rare, you know. And then finally he developed a cough and he had an, a chest x-ray and the chest x-ray did not look good. And so um, he was hospitalized and that was how Paul first got diagnosed, um, uh, was having this CT scan. And then we looked at the CT ourselves, uh, which was really crazy. I mean, it was like a physician wasn't gently giving us the news, you know, it was like we were two physicians looking at it. We knew exactly what it was more or less. We didn't know it was long, but um, I remember, I mean, I remember looking at that, that CT scan and thinking like, you know, I will, I will hold him as he dies. I just was like, that is what, that's what's happening. And then the next years after that, we're like, how do you make sense of this? And how do you reshape your identity? And we had a child. I mean, it was like, it was actually like really wonderful years, but um, just, you know, as you know, unbelievably intense. It, it can be intense. So how long did you guys live well with this serious illness? He was feeling pretty good for almost a year. He was on one of the novel targeted therapies, like an oral chemo pill that was very easy to take. And he went back to work as a neurosurgeon um, for a year, which was super important to his identity. I mean, the upheaval in identity was unreal. Um, apart from thinking about your mortality when you're 36, like the fact of not thinking about yourself as having a future or having that be so uncertain was like the identity piece can't be overstated how intense that part was. Um, and then he, uh, through a series of like really lucky events, secured a book deal and shifted to writing when he was too sick to operate. And that was um, spectacular. So how did cancer change your relationship? Oh, yeah. I mean, Paul jokes when in When Breath Becomes Air, he says, the truth is cancer kind of saved our marriage. And I don't really think that's true. I mean, our, so... I'll, people kind of know this now, so I'm okay talking about it, but our marriage was kind of on the rocks when he, at the time that he got diagnosed, um, you know, the pressures of work and all that stuff, um, in a way, I mean, it was like, we were a little bit grown apart and we knew it and we were both in a lot of pain around it. But, um, and then we kind of got it all out on the table, like truly uh, three weeks before he got diagnosed or something. I mean, it was like, maybe even sooner. It was like such weird timing. And then, um, and then he was diagnosed and it was like, uh, I wrote in the epilogue to the book, it was like a nutcracker. I mean, it was like, it just, we ended up in the little corn nut of our marriage, you know, but I think one thing it kind of taught me, I guess a couple things. One was like the power of circumstance. I mean, nothing changed in our marriage exactly. Right. But uh, the whole circumstances of our lives changed overnight. And so that was interesting to see, like the real effect, like shifting effect that had. And then the other thing was, I was much more like, su as supportive as like, I don't want to say I wasn't supportive before, but when Paul decided to go back to work as a neurosurgeon, it sort of like deepened my understanding of what that meant to him. And I felt like incredibly supportive of like wanting to help him live his life, like really the way he wanted to. Um, and I sort of was... I felt like my love for him became a little bit less conditional um, in a way. And same thing with like communication. Like he was like, kind of introverted. He was like better putting things into writing than he was into like spoken words. <laughs> but I think, yeah, I just was like, I want to help you cope. And I want to 
like whatever you need, I'm going to do it. And then when I did that, he like turned toward me too. I mean, it was really fascinating. I, it was like, and then it's like two years later, I'd been worried about our marriage. And two years later, it's like our marriage ended because he died. And I would give anything for our marriage not to have ended, you know? I mean, it was like, I don't know. And I think there are lots of different things happen in marriages during illness, right? Like anything could happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you, you, you sort of took it to another level too. You had a child. Right. I know that was kind of, I'm so glad we did. She's about to turn three. She was eight months old when Paul died and we knew she would likely not remember him, that she wouldn't know him when she grew up. And we had tons of family support to be able to do that and felt really confident in each other. And she's so beautiful. I know. She's like little Indian me. I want her skin. I mean, oh, she's just... <laughs> I want eyelashes. <laughs> and those huge eyelashes. Yeah, too. she's plucky and she's cool. Yeah. I mean, how did you go from here? Here is you're trying to work on your marriage. Here's a diagnosis to let's have a baby. Yeah. So it was kind of crazy. And we sort of knew that. Um, and I think we raised a lot of eyebrows doing it in a way. But um, we had always thought we would have children toward the end of Paul's residency. Um kind of because like that was when things were going to get easier, you know, when we knew it, um, when the, the, you know, tether of work would sort of slacken up. But um, um, then he got diagnosed and I think both of us sort of were considering it and started talking about it. And he was more certain than I was initially. Um, and then there was this conversation that Paul writes about in When Breath Becomes Air that really crystallized things for me because I was pretty worried about him and what it would mean to have a newborn at a time when you know you're dying. And I said, you know, don't you think that having a child and having to say goodbye to the child will make dying more painful? Um, and he, he responded, well, wouldn't it be great if it did? And that, that sort of like, you know, like freed it up. I mean, it totally changed the meaning of what it was for him to have a child, you know? Um, to me, it helped me understand that. And, um, it was wonderful. I mean, it truly, like when he was in the last, uh, year of Paul's life, like the manuscript for when breath becomes air was evolving and growing. And then Katie was doing the same thing <laughs> as an infant. I mean, it was, you know, it was wonderful. Paul wrote an article that sort of got an an eyebrow raised with this book and then he was diagnosed and he was journaling. So how, how did this book come about? Um, and first of all, the title, I mean, when breath becomes air. Yeah. So the title Paul came up with pretty late in the process and it's from an Elizabethan poem, poem by the, you know, statesman and poet Greville who wrote, um, you that seek what life is in death now find it air that once was breath. And it's the epigraph to the book and it's beautiful. And he was reading this book of poetry and said, I think I've come up with the title for my book, When Breath Becomes Hair. <laughs> and I was like, it's pretty good. Um, and obviously it sort of describes the moment of dying, right? When what was your breath, what was breath um, turns into air, just air. And um, so Paul got really lucky. He wrote um, kind of like a personal journal entry, just like you said, uh, about what it felt like to be dealing with the uncertainty of prognostication and when it was him rather than one of his patients, like how that uncertainty felt. And um, 
he sent it to a couple of friends and said, you know, I'd love to publish this. What do you think? And his best friend said, you know, here are all my line edits. And I don't know if it's really that good yet. And the other one wrote back and said, I forwarded it to the op-ed desk at the New York Times. And they published it verbatim. I mean, it was like one of those essays in the New York <laughs> Times that like people started sharing on Facebook and doctors were sharing it and patients were sharing it. And he was incredibly gratified. And um, he wrote another one before he, that one was called How Long Have I Got Left? And he wrote one more before he died called um, Before I Go. And that was about the nature of time and what it meant to have a child uh, during that time. And both of them ended up in the book in various forms. But the viral essay in the New York, in the New York Times was what led to the book deal. And um, it was so serendipitous. And so here you have a young child and he's he's writing, but he didn't finish the book. Right. So where does he leave off and where do you pick up? Yeah, so um, it's all him. Basically what happened was um, Paul died, you know, kind of all writing. I mean, it was he was sort of coming to the end in a way. The last part he wrote was the beginning, like when he's talking about being a young child in um, rural Arizona. And he was the least confident about that. And it turns out he wrote that with brain metastases um, and leptomeningeal disease. And it's like the editor loved it. Um, But I think that was, you know, that was a hard time for him. I mean, things, his health was really changing. And um, yet it was totally fortifying and amazing to be writing and to know that, um, you know, his words would outlive him in it. And that was actually wonderful. So um, when he died, there was more he could have written and some pieces of it, um, his editor and I sort of supplemented. So there's a section in the book where he's talking about anatomy lab and being a medical student in the anatomy lab and how when you're in a CPR class, you pretend the mannequins are real. And when you're in anatomy lab as a student, you're kind of pretending the cadavers are fake. And like, what does it mean to interact with somebody's body so intimately? And he wrote that as a second year med student, actually. And had been meaning to like splice it in and wrote himself a little note about splicing in the anatomy lab essay. And so there was a bunch of stuff like that, that I knew where to go get it, you know, like, okay, great. We can flesh this out still. Um, and we had promised him that we would publish it. You know, I was like, we, I will publish this as a book. Well, you know, that's what's going to happen as he was dying. And, um, and then some pieces of it, like those other essays and stuff um, shaped some of it. And then I, the main thing that I feel like I did was, um, write the epilogue to the book, which reflected on Paul as a person and what's been happening since he died. And then also very specifically what happened on the day Paul died, which um, sort of felt like a, like if he could have written it, he would have written it, you know? And at first I was like, I can't write an epilogue. What are you talking about um, to the publisher? But then it felt actually wonderful. Well, it's funny in an interview that I, I believe I either heard you in, in Greenville or in an interview, you're like, Paul was the writer. I was the talker. <laughs> and, and, I feel like Paul is still here and tag teaming you because now you're talking about it. Mm-hmm. And I, when I was seeing you in, in Greenville talking and seeing the video, I I wanted to run up to you and, and whisper in your ear like, are you okay? Because mm. that must be really, really hard to see something that you had and talk about in the present that you it's no more. I don't, how do you do that? Because you're doing it nationally. Oh, that's such a nice thing to say. I really appreciate you saying that. Um, Yeah, I mean, mostly connecting with Paul's writing and then, you know, watching that video, we sort of, there's this book trailer that Random House made. It's like two minutes long and it's like a, it's like a movie trailer, but it's for the book and it has Paul's 
you know, picture videos of Paul talking and stuff. But it actually feels great. I mean, I think I have the chance to just like keep talking about grief and keep talking about Paul. I mean, Paul, most importantly, you know, I get to say his name. I think a lot of people like somebody dies and you don't really get to say their name. So that is, that's been wonderful. And it sort of changes the way I'll relate to people who've lost somebody, you know. With the book and with everything that you're doing, speaking about the book, I mean, do you feel like you've had time to grieve? Um, yes, I totally do. Um, I really do. I think that time before the book came out, uh, which was like 10 months after Paul died, was really lonely. Like I thought I was going to die of loneliness. I got a haircut at one point and was like, my hair is still growing. Like, I'm so lonely. I don't know how my hair is growing. So, you know, just like, it's like your body, my body's still working. So I think, you know, like connecting with people over the book and traveling and these various things tied up and doing a book tour and speaking, it has actually reshaped my own life in a way that is, a, it's a moving forward, right? It's not like I went back to my old life, um, same way Paul didn't. Are you surprised? about how people are receiving this book? Are you surprised that you're getting phone calls to come talk about this book? Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, like, really, totally. Um, I think, I mean, it's been really overwhelming in certain ways. Like, the, Paul's book is being translated into 40 languages. And they're, like, breathing down my neck about making a movie, which I can't. I, like, can't. <laughs> I can't do it. Um, <laughs> you know, at least not right now. I mean, it's, like, too, that's too inconceivable. So, um but, you know, I mean, it's just been awesome, I think, and more than awesome. That's, it feels like it's even understating it. I think, you know, Paul Paul was such a fan of literature and so embroiled in these, like, big questions about, you know, what does it mean to be mortal and how do we build meaning in our lives and um, what, you know, how do we shape our identities? How do we hold our identities? And so to have him, you know, have this kind of tome that's part of a canon that he adored um is amazing you know i mean he has a legacy and other people are other people are making that legacy possible i think that's uh, that's an awesome way to look at it because i mean you don't we all think about our own legacy is what are we going to leave behind and i think that when i read the book when it first came out i i had to wait because i was i listened to it um it was it, it was just beautiful but i will say this your part um, your part is the only part that made me cry because I, I felt that lone. I don't know if you were wrote, I, where did you write that last piece? Was it after, how long after he died? Did you write that piece? It was finished like two months after he died. Cause I, that's, I felt your loneliness. I did. And it just, wow. oh, it just, so let's talk about Katie, which is probably the biggest legacy of all. How's she doing? You're a very empathetic, lovely person. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thanks. Um, So tell me a little bit about Katie and, and do you see Paul in her eyes? I literally see Paul in her eyes. She has like these big dark eyes and they're very intense. So um, yes. And she has these like eyelashes that are totally to die for, which Paul also had. Um, uh, But anyway, she, uh, she's about to turn three and it's funny where, um, uh, I, she literally just today, um, looked at me and said, I want to see my daddy. And I was like, yeah, we can't see your daddy. He died. His body stopped working and he's not here. Um, those are like some of the things I say a little bit. And then she started crying and said, I want to see my daddy. I want my daddy to come. 
like, like very, very, like the first time she's ever like really articulated that in like two sentences in a row and like upset, like actually upset. And I wasn't sure how to respond. I was sort of like, I, at first I kind of didn't know. And I just was sort of saying like, I'm sorry. And me too. And then I was like, do you want to hear some more about your daddy? And she was like, yeah. And so then I was like, okay, let me tell you these things about your daddy. You know, he was nice and he was funny. And who else is nice and funny? Katie. So then it's like, I just, you know, but it's like, oh man, I think as with everything to do with parenting, it's like these tiny moments that you suddenly find yourself in a big moment, you know, like, and it's unexpected. And um, I think this is like one of my great responsibilities is to her, you know, and helping her understand where she came from. I think Katie's very lucky to have you. Now, are you still practicing? Um, a phys- you're still a practicing physician? Yes, I'm at Stanford. And I'm a general internist. How are you doing everything? Speaker, talker, <laughs> mother, doctor, writer. I mean, how are you doing it all? So, I mean, in a practical sense, I see patients half time. So, I used to, my career previously was focused on healthcare value and like thinking about healthcare quality and cost, specifically like monetary cost. I'm really interested in healthcare utilization and healthcare spending, you know, which is like a big deal in our time. (laughs) Like 18% of the GDP, like that's a, right. (laughs) So, um, you know, and like, what are we getting for our money? So I used to think about that all the time. And then, um, Paul got sick and I, um, my thinking about that, you know, first of all, was put a little on hold by, um, you know, taking care of him and maternity leave and all these other various things, my mind was really elsewhere. And then now I think about healthcare value sort of in terms of human values. Um, And I'm on the patient and caregiver side too now, and especially end of life care, you know, I think how we do end of life care is one of the big, you know, moral questions of our time. Um, And, uh, and so practically speaking, I'm employed half time. (laughs) And then the other half is my own, which basically means a book tour and some speaking and who knows what else. I mean, I think (laughs) we can do a career counseling session after this, (laughs) (laughs) but it's exciting. I mean, it's meaningful and I love it. For some reason, I, I I think you're writing. Are you going to write? I, for some reason, I feel like you're a writer too. Oh, thanks for saying that. I think writing's really hard, but I think maybe everybody thinks writing really hard except for Paul. Yeah, I think writing is absolutely hard, <laughs> especially when you're writing about something you lost. It's it's hard. And but I will say it's very cleansing too. And um yeah. Uh, so get this. I'm going to see you in December. I'm coming coming to the Inwell conference. I heard oh, wonderful. Shoshana in San Francisco. Um, yeah. Now, do you live in San Francisco? I live just south. Just outside. Yeah. Mhm. Um so you're going to be speaking and I really wanted I told Shoshana that I would try to plug this conference because I have never seen a conference where creative people and clinicians and artists and everybody are coming together to really think outside the box of how we can change end of life and and reclaim it as a human experience. Um, So I'm really excited about you being at this conference. Me too. Me too. The end well conference. It's going to be really beautiful. And you're right. It's going to include artists, patients. It's really sort of about not just medically, how do we think about end of life, but how do we think about it culturally? And then how do we, like you say, it's not, and Atul Gawande, this is like how he talked about in being mortal, right? Is like, 
aging and dying we think of as medical problems, but they're totally not. They're like what it means to have a human body. So that's a much bigger thing than just medicine. It totally is. So it's so insightful. I can't tell you how much I have enjoyed seeing you and talking to you again. I know you're a busy person and um, I just really honor our time together and thank you for sharing and introducing me to Paul um, and in a very small way, Katie. Um, So thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. It was so nice to talk with you. I'll see you soon. Thanks for joining us today. And remember, you're the designer.